Just be a moment now. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the second Friday of the month, which means it's time for Food Addiction Friday with Dr. Joan Iflin. And today they'll be discussing the truth about what conquering food addiction can do to put health problems into remission. Please welcome Dr. Joan to the show. It's nice to see you again. Thank you, Chef AJ. It's always an honor to be here. I'm so glad to be connecting with your audience. Oh, well, they love what you are presenting. And I know you have a special guest today. So if you'd like to introduce her. This is Liz Curran. And Liz Curran is taking recovery from food addiction to a whole new level. She's come at it from a different direction. She's come at it from the direction of putting, quote unquote, incurable diseases into remission. She works with Kelly Turner. Kelly Turner is the author of two books that changed my life, Radical Remission and Radical Hope. I like the books because they're science-based. Kelly Turner worked on this as part of a doctoral program at University of California, Berkeley, and she's got the science lined out. So um, we're very confident in our world that uh, this works. I've spent the last year studying Dr. Turner's research, making videos for our internal community on these 10 factors and being very grateful for this, for, to, for the scientific basis. We have a new community. It's called the Remission Optimistic Community based on Dr. Turner's work. And Liz is one of the the heads, the, you're an executive within the Radical Remission organization. I'm going to be taking their training this summer Yay. in preparation for taking a more in-depth training in the fall. So what is the connection to food addiction? Diet is one of the 10 factors yes. that people who put advanced cancer into remission undertake. Radical diet change. And of course, we know on this show that radical diet change is really inextricably tied up with processed food addiction and overcoming the addiction is um, the key. It's the core for many people, probably millions of people now to cleaning up their diets. But here is the thing that is so cool. Where is the overlap between the radical remission work and uh, getting processed food addiction under control. I'll tell you a little story. Um, my colleague, Tina Little, found the Radical Remission book and gave it to me. I'm listening to it as I'm driving down to California, one of my COVID Seattle, California drives. And I'm listening to these 10 factors. And what I'm hearing is that the ARC, you guys know the ARC, the Addiction Reset Community that we've had for five and a half years now, the ARC is using that factor and that factor and that factor and that factor and that factor. We already had incorporated eight out of the 10, and now that I've got the whole list of 10, we are now incorporating all 10. So one of the things that I've said over the years is that food 
is only 10% of recovery. So people think, oh, you get this food plan and then you're okay. Oh no. And the radical remission work really supports that. Yes, you can get your food cleaned up and your diseases don't go away. Why? Because of stress, because of the blockages in human function that stress creates. So when you can get people into a community and they are cherished and they're, they're in an environment where they learn to think about themselves positively rather than negatively, and they can always turn to that community, which is how we have our community set up, then the healing is more secure. They still have to show up. They still have to work out their schedules and uh, participate in the way that works for them. But this is something that that is so it's so different from what anybody else is talking about. And, you know, you see these food plan groups and they're like, oh, you just followed the food plan. Just follow the food plan. Oh, you're not doing well because you didn't follow the food plan well enough. No, no, that is to me, that's psychologically abusive to tell you that it's it's a big comprehensive approach and so i know this is food addiction fridays how do you conquer food addiction well interestingly enough it's the same set of changes in our lives that dr kelly turner and now liz is is officiating to put advanced cancer into remission and, and well, how could that possibly be? They're two very, very different diseases. No, nope, they're the same disease. All right, Liz, with that big introduction, tell us what you do and <laughs> how you came to be involved in some of your own story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that introduction and for having me today. Um, I am one of the co-directors of the Radical Remission Project and um, also a radical remission teacher and coach. So um, we look forward to having you in our community. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, just a little bit, of, I'll give you a real brief background on radical remission. I know you know it, but just for your audience. Um, so Dr. Kelly Turner did research uh, over 15 years ago now on spontaneous remission cancer patients and what they did to heal after conventional medicine no longer was an option for them. So these were people that were outside of treatment and not that we, you know, from the position of the radical remission project, you know, we're not against conventional treatment at all. It's just that the research happened to be done because she really wanted to know what did these people do when medicine was not in the picture. And it turned out that there were 10, these 10, what we call healing mm -hmm. factors mm -hmm. um, that you're talking about that they all did. And there were, you know, 1500 cases that she researched and interviewed yeah. the, the, uh, the healers and the patients. And, um, and she found that all of them, there were many, many things that they did to heal, but the consistency between everyone was these 10 things. And um, do you want me to just kind of run through them real quick? Let's do that. So okay. these are the, the, the relevance here for food addiction is these are the same 10 things that uh, we have found work to put food addiction into remission. Yes. And, you know, to, to your point, the first book, Radical Remission, was based on cancer, right? Because that was the initial research. The second book, she put out Radical Hope, 
kind of starts encompassing all chronic illnesses, autoimmune disorders, all kinds of different things. And really that just leads us to, we can all benefit from these 10 things. And mm-hmm. I know I personally use them for emotional support. Um, how I came to radical remission was that um, I lost my sister to breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And I just felt strongly that there had to be something that she could have done um, alongside of her treatment to feel more empowered mm-hmm. and not so helpless. And mm-hmm. when I found these 10 healing factors, it became almost a roadmap for me on what I could do with my clients to empower them to want to embody these things so that they can heal. Um, and you know, it's something that we call even health seekers, something health seekers. Health seekers yeah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like your community has a lot of those um, people who have already made the big leap into the diet change. And then what are these other factors that yeah. come into play? It's, it's a different door, but I bet your people, you know, they come in because they want to put cancer in remission. But yes. then they find out that all these other things go away yes. and people come into our community. Oh, I've got to get my food under control. But then all these other things go away, mental, emotional, behavioral, physical. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's a really a lot of fun. You get all these huge bonuses. So yeah. go ahead and run through the 10 factors. OK, so we have the th- first three are physical. So changing your diet. Um adding movement or exercise to your, your daily routine. Mm -hmm. And from a cancer perspective, we recommend, uh, taking every one of the radical remission survivors that were researched took some kind of herb or supplement that was Mm -hmm. prescribed. So going through the prescription process with a practitioner, with an expert, right. That's the one that needs to be done under the guidance and supervision of a licensed practitioner. Okay. So the physical or change your diet, get some movement going and work with an expert on your supplements. Same thing for recovery from processed food addiction. Yes. Yeah. And you know, it's hard to say uh, she was Kelly Turner was uh, said that she wished that she would have found one herb that was the magic, you know, magical herb. But what, what's interesting when we look at that one piece is that it measured if people had um, uh, detoxification that their bodies needed was there something that their immunities that they needed to boost, like what was missing that needed a boost. And then also what were um, some of the uh, foods that like, that maybe weren't being absorbed properly. So it's really Mm -hmm. looking at the, the full, um, the full blood panel and really giving a good look at each individual person and getting a snapshot on what their needs were. So it is. Right. Yeah. So then moving into the emotional and spiritual, we have um, following your intuition. Mm -hmm. We have increasing or having a spiritual connection. And that doesn't necessarily mean religion. It just means having a belief system that there is something greater than us out there in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of helps us with faith and hope and belief that we can make change. Yeah. Um, Increasing positive emotions. Yeah. Releasing suppressed emotions. Mm-hmm. And then we have empowerment. So yeah. uh, in the realm of radical remission, empowerment means feeling very comfortable to be the CEO of your own health. Mm-hmm. So you're asking your doctor questions that maybe most people would be, you know, too shy to ask or don't feel that they have the authority to ask. But when you think of yourself as the CEO of, you know, you're at the, the ta- head of the table in the boardroom. 
the doctor is one person at the table. You have your support system, you have your practitioners. So allowing- Yes, and also expanding your practitioners. You decide. Some of the horrific stories in the radical books were about practitioners who threatened to fire patients if they went outside this very narrow- Right. It is narrow. Western medicine is, I'm just looking at a book now that says Western medicine covers about 20% of what's available. Mm-hmm. And so having, being empowered, that that factor empowered means also going and looking for other kinds of practitioners. Yeah. And there's even one case in the book where the family of a young man decided not to share with the practitioners, the Western practitioners, that they were going and getting other help because those Western practitioners had said, you do that, you're fired. So these are wise decisions, but it goes back up to the top of that list of five and intuition. Mm -hmm. In our community, we use a lot of something called motivational interviewing where we never tell our members what to do what we do is we listen to them carefully, feedback their strengths, feedback their ideas, and they come up with a plan and then we repeat the plan back to them. Mm. But what, what, what does that do? I think intuition is suppressed by processed foods. Mm. Processed foods are generally numbing and they're generally, uh, they give us brain fog, they make it hard to think, they make us tired. Um, they're taking blood flow away from their frontal lobe. That's what addictions do. And we lose contact with our own wisdom. So this, this I, li- I like the way intuition and empowerment are connected because Kelly Turner makes this great point in the book. Your doctor is not the expert in you. Right. You are the expert in you. And that's hugely empowering. So if a doctor is not aware, for example, or any kind of Western health practitioner, that their modalities only cover 20% of what's available, then they're not going to be able to tell you, oh, yeah, 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 go try these other things. They will discourage you. I mean, they've been trained to say that's quackery. So intuition, when you say, hmm, you know, my intuition is telling me I'd like to try acupuncture or I'd like to try a spiritual healer. You know, so, you know, what, why not? Right. And this is, this is the power of the radical remission books. Yes. They, they just explain all of this. And this, so this is the same thing that we're using to put processed food addiction into remission. Right. All right yeah. Let's keep going. Yes. Yeah, so there's two more. Uh, one is, um, really powerful. And we often think, um, while, while I will say none of these are, there's no order of importance because it's very, very subjective to each person, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. we do feel this one has, um, it really helps motivate all the rest to be able to come to fruition. And that would be strong reasons for living. Yes. 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 So without having, um, kind of a reason to get out of bed every day and a reason to, you know, take that step forward. Um, it's a, often, it can be hard to adopt lifestyle change. Yep. So purpose, yep. uh, purpose and strong reasons um, is a really important one. And then lastly, this, uh, obviously you are all embodying this beautifully is having a support social support system. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want everybody to know that the research on these ideas is stunning. So I went back through all Kelly Turner's citations. I looked them up. I read at least the summary of the study and uh, sometimes the whole study. I want to uh, talk about two studies sure. in having a around having a purpose. Yeah. One of them showed that people who have a purpose live longer. Isn't that shocking? Oh, yeah. But their children also live longer. It was very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, the socializing was also really interesting to me. I have looked at research about weight gain and socializing, weight loss and socializing. And um, the research is, there's a couple of really good studies showing that if your social circle is not losing weight, you cannot expect to lose weight. That belonging and, and fitting in to your social circle is much more important than anything else. It goes back to survival days when uh, if whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, this is one place where those two bodies of thought and belief over overlap. You have to be in a tribe to survive. Yes. And how do you get a tribe to help you uh, find food, water, shelter, fight off predator, predators, make sure your children reach maturity? You fit in. You do what they're doing. And then they like you, they accept you, and then they protect you and you survive. So this is this to me is the dominant force in, in the brain. It's why we have a community. We broadcast on Zoom 15 over 15 hours a day because it's then it's very easy for the brain to identify with healthy people. But the the other study, um, this is done by two Harvard. Uh, one was a sociologist and the other one, I forgot. But they found that, that obesity is contagious through mm -hmm. social circles. It was, uh, they used the Framingham Heart data from Massachusetts and so who you hang around, how you socialize is really important. I just read a, I, it's so, I mean, it's so cool to know these things. I read about the oldest woman on the planet. I think the oldest person, 124 years old in France, recently died. So a longevity expert had interviewed her a couple of years before she died. And they asked him, of course, you know, why do you think she lived so long? What was his first word? Socializing. She hadn't had to work in her life and she did a lot of socializing. And for the last 20 years, she lived in a very social community. So let's talk, Liz, about how do we put this all together? What is your approach to, you know, is it overwhelming for somebody to be sitting there thinking, oh gosh, 10 factors. And I don't, you know, I, I've tried for 20 years to get my food under control and I can't do it. And what do you say to people? Yes, yeah, so it can be. And uh, what we often do, we run workshops uh, around these factors. And a lot of times people are kind of paralyzed. How am I going to mm -hmm. do all of this at once? And really the, the point is that it does not all need to be done at once. Mm -hmm. It needs to be, so everybody, what I, I will 
would recommend is, you know, looking at this list of factors and it's the table of contents in each of the books is the list of the factors. Um, looking at that list as an individual and saying, which one looks easy, which one looks hard. And then kind of sense, what kind of place are you in right now? Are you in a place where you need to kind of reaffirm and, and build some confidence and, and set yourself up for success? Maybe lean towards one of the easier ones that you know that you can, that are within your comfort zone and reachable so that yeah. you get some momentum. And mm -hmm. then the most difficult one, just keep it on the radar, know that it exists and navigate your way through the factors. Sometimes we feel really ready, right? We're really ready. I really want to conquer this one, but then the, the next week, you know, no more. I can't, I can't do that. So the beautiful thing is there are 10 and yeah. learning how to implement each one into your life can be, you know, it allows you a lot of space to navigate different paths, no matter where you are in your health. I think that's the key right there. It's this is highly individualistic. Yes. It's highly individualistic. Yes. And um, we have a, a system called totters, try, observe, talk, tweak, enjoy, repeating slowly, which is, <laughs> you know, try, just try it out. And right. the thing that we found, so we do, we did based on the, the science in these books, we did evolve out of the addiction reset community. We've now evolved a remission optimistic community, but we, um, I, and, and getting ready for that and Tina Little uh, really in our organization headed that up. There are dozens of really fun YouTube videos and you, it doesn't cost anything to mm -hmm. open up a YouTube video. Even if you're too tired to actually do what's in the video, they're soothing. Um, and, and so I'm in the beta of this community because I have lifelong asthma that I'm determined to put into remission. And so I'm trying, I mean, kind of just getting into the headset. Okay, you know, I'm going to, uh, I, I'm going to see, to see what, what can I put into remission? Yeah. And it's given me the courage to try like a Qigong video. I've never yeah. tried Qigong. And recently to go to sleep, I've been trying singing bowls, singing. Oh, bowls. wow. Yeah. Yes. And last night I went to bed with a little bit of a tight chest, uh, a little of an asthma experience. And I turned on the singing bowls. I've been listening to them for mm, maybe two and a half weeks or so for a good hour as I go to sleep and my chest relaxed and wow. the asthma lifted the difficulty in breathing lifted. I have done, uh, I plunged into br breath work, Amazing. breath work, and that's incredibly miraculous. Yeah. And there are breath work videos. Oh, you can find videos YouTube. on everything. It's it really is one of the the blessings of the internet, right? Uh, yeah. We we talk about um, with the increasing positive emotions factor. Again, it's it's making sure that you can find joy in your life. Sometimes that looks like laughter, and sometimes it looks like gratitude. But uh -huh. um, I I have a personal favorite. The videos I love to watch on YouTube during when I when I share this factor is um, I don't know if I've shared this with you the cat versus cucumber videos. Did I tell you? Ah. 
So you have just thinking about it. Yeah. So there is something about cucumbers that I guess instinctually cats, if they don't expect to see it, they jump. So there's just a whole series of videos on YouTube where cats are either eating or just minding their own business. Their owner puts a cucumber behind them. And when the cat sees it, they jump sky high. Oh so my God. I think animal bloopers are hilarious. They're very, you know, no animals are harmed in the process of making these videos and they're, they just make me giggle. And Absolutely. It's, that, it's that sensation of silly, or maybe some, someone feels that way when they dance or sing maybe if they like to sing and they just need to be alone because they're maybe not the best singer so that they right. can really, really <laughs> right. belt it out. Right. Um, and then some people do it in a gratitude journal. You know, what are the things I'm grateful for today so that you can kind of activate that part of our brain that set, floods us with those healing hormones of serotonin and oxytocin. Okay. There, there's the key. Yeah. There's yeah. the key. All of these activities all the ones mentioned in the Radical Remission and Radical Hope books, there's a, there's a footnote. There's evidence. And what is the evidence for? A radical change in what is in your brain and your blood. Yes. It goes from stress, destru destructive stress agents, hormones, to, um, to healing. Right. So that is the big secret. That is yes. the big breakthrough. And that's why all of these things have been used for thousands of years. Right. But these are these are typically, I don't know if there was anything really, 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 really new. There was new research, but yeah. there's new research showing why do these practices that have been used for thousands of years, why do they work? Right. And yeah, it was almost so, a way to yeah. validate that these simple, they what well, sound simple. They're really not simple. They're radical, right. To actually implement, but um, they're very basic stepping stones and things that, you know, it's not rocket science to think that changing your diet and exercising is going to be helpful, but also to hear someone say that thousands of cancer patients are overcoming the odds of the diagnosis that they've been given by doing things that make them happy every day. Yes. Or, you know, yes. those are, those are really validating and really yes. helpful. So I love yes. that as a, I love this as a roadmap because it's been validated through the research and through the science. And, and we all know that these, each one of these, while they may not be curative for everyone or everything, they are immune boosting and post pandemic era, who does not want to have a strong immune system? Me. Yeah, I want one. Yes. I'll take yeah. one of those. Yeah. <laughs> right. So this is, this is the other thing that is so cool about this journey is it makes us happy. Right. Yes. And, and as I said before, so maybe you're working on cancer or you're working on diabetes. You, your quality of life just. Whoosh, yes, absolutely. Because you're, you're making a deliberate intentional effort to to do these things and and guess what they do it's as liz is saying they release dopamine and serotonin in your brain well those are the neurochemicals that make us feel happy and satisfied some of them release opioids which makes us feel good even Calm. cannabinoids so this is it's it's a huge win 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 
And now I know a lot of you are thinking like, oh, why doesn't my doctor tell me about this? Well, just, you know, you guys know I have a business background. I have a Stanford MBA that's only 50 years old, but I do <laughs> look at business models. And in the early 1900s, and this is in Rob Lustig's book, um, Metabolical. And I, I think I have it around here, but it's Rob Lustig's book, Rob Lustig's book, Metabolical, where he goes back to the early days of the pharmaceutical industry. John D. Rockefeller, the oil tycoon, had a byproduct, coal tar, that was a, that was a pharmaceutical for skin problems. And he thought, mm -hmm, I could I could create a pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm, how am I going to make my pharmaceutical industry uh, successful? Mm -hmm, well, I'm going to suppress all the competition. And I'm going to put out there that pharmaceuticals and surgery are the only things that work. And everything else is quackery. So he had enough power to go over to Germany and get this scientific medical curriculum and uh, attract doctors to, to train in this curriculum and go around to the legislatures and the licensing boards and say, you know, everything else is quackery. So we want to make this the only voice. And all of these great healing techniques were lost. And doctors are trained. Um, I have some people close in my life who are trained MDs. They are trained to identify all these other things as quackery. So no, your doctor could lose his or her license by recommending right. that you try these things. And, and that's not, why it's important to um, know that and allow them to give you the benefits of the job that you're essentially hiring them to do for you. Right? Exactly, they have a role, they are on yes. the list, we want right. them. I'm not trying to deal with this asthma without a doctor. I have an inhaler. I use Western medicine along with right. everything else. Yeah, and trying to get to the root of the of the issue, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. a lot of that is in the, the factor of um, processing negative emotions. You use a different phrase. What do you say, Liz? Releasing suppressed emotions. Thank you. Yes. Releasing suppressed emotions. They do get stuck in our bodies. Emotions get stuck in our bodies. And when they're stuck, what I realized from reading these great books is that they're preventing blood flow from moving through the body. There's a muscle there uh, that's, that's tight. And I think that's the issue around my asthma. How did those those stuck places get there, some kind of trauma, some kind of negativity. We were afraid, we felt helpless, we felt hopeless, we, um, we were angry and we weren't allowed to express it. So if you guys know the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel mm -hmm. van der Kolk, you know that processing negative emotions is, it has a, a physical effect. So there are two pieces. Your, your blood has to be full of the right stuff. You're doing all these happy making things, dancing, singing, playing games. By the way, I, I wanted to mention this when we were talking about having a purpose in life. There's a good study showing that having fun is a great purpose in life. So you're That's out funny. there, you're booking fun times with your friends and it's 
it's releasing negative emotions, but it's also improving blood flow. So two things have to happen in order for that cancer cell or that pancreatic cell or the liver cell or the gut cell to start flourishing. Blood has to be reaching that cell. And that's where the releasing negative emotions comes in. And the second thing is the bloodstream has to be full of good stuff, good healing stuff. And that's all these happy making activities. Liz, do you just think this is so much fun? Oh, I, I absolutely am full of gratitude every single day for being able to work in the realm of these, you know, this world of um, just bringing the the um, message to people about how accessible healing can be. And yeah. it's, it's, it's as just close as YouTube. Very inspiring. Yep. Give us some stories. Give us some of your favorite stories. Oh, um, well, I will say uh, my partner, Carla, who couldn't be here today, um, she is one of the co-directors at the Radical Remission Project as well. And she is somebody who has had um, a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis, and she's been in uh, remission for seven years. Yay! And that is not something that people in, with metastatic breast cancer often see. Mm -hmm. So she also is a self-proclaimed longevity geek. And so it is very important. One of her strong reasons for living is that she wants to live to be 100 years old and healthy and sane. Yes. And so at her 50th birthday party, she gave everyone a mug that had an invitation to her 100th birthday party. <laughs> and so everything she does is with the goal of being 100 healthy and sane. And mm -hmm. that, you know, and so that gives you an umbrella of, you know, you need joy, you need faith, you need belief, you, you know, there's all of these, these healing factors play a role in that. Mm -hmm. And that she does believe that that was a plays a really big role in her healing. Well, you don't have to just believe it, you can look at the research. Now, right. I don't remember which study, but there is something on every strand of DNA, both ends of it have something called telomeres. Mm -hmm. It's like a, um, a shoelace. And then it has the hard casing at the end. So these telomeres correlate with longevity. The longer and more active your telomere, the longer you're going to live. Hmm. So I don't remember which activity it was, but I do remember one of the studies was of telomere activity and yeah. telomere health. Yes, this is not, um, this is not trivial. This is right. extra years on your life. Yep. This is not, and it's not just extra years on your life, but it's what Liz is saying about her calling. They're good years. They're right. Good years. Yes. And I can't tell you how many of our clients we see, you know, we've had clients for years now. They're not disappearing on us. They're, you know, our, you're, our you're their social circle now. Right. Yes. Yeah. We have a, a lot of wonderful people that have all kinds of um, ways of, you know, one of our, our women right now, she hops in an RV and she travels all over the place and yeah. she flies home when she needs to get chemo for, you know, or a couple of days and flies back to her RV and keeps traveling because mm -hmm. she wants experience. And that's what you were saying earlier about, um, when you have something kind of rock your world, some kind of diagnosis or addiction or some kind of change that after the change, your life looks very different. 
And it can be very hard to let go of some of the old things, some of the old people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some of the, you know, past habits or, you know, things that people attach themselves to over time. But we do have people look back as we call them our thrivers, right? Our inspired thrivers. Um, They're always forward thinking and looking ahead at, you know, what's to come that's good and ways ways to infuse that. Right. Optimism. Great. Great. Exactly. That's the factor of positive thinking. Yes, absolutely. Positivity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so making sure that they can let go. That's part of the releasing suppressed emotions, right? And and what's an interesting point about releasing suppressed emotions is it's not just negative, it's also nostalgia. So mm-hmm. letting go of living in the past. So mm-hmm. if you're someone who, you know, peaked when you were, you know, just a play on the, or the uh, high school football star. Yes, exactly what I was going to say. Super cliche, but yes, the high school football star who's living, you know, those were his golden years and, and he looks back and he just always remembers, you know, this game and that game and this day, but he's not living in the present mm-hmm. and he's not looking ahead. Mm-hmm. So how can you take that and release that and, and acknowledge and love it for what it was, but mm-hmm. bring that into your, your daily purpose. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's, becoming a coach or volunteering at a little league or some way of taking that, what you loved about that time and allowing it to become present. So it's kind of to part of mindfulness. Yeah. So that is so cool. Yeah. yeah living in the past period. It's like a stuck thing and it goes to show that's why releasing suppressed emotions isn't just considered negative emotions. It's just it's stuff that gets stuck. Yeah. That is so helpful. I never thought of it that way. That's mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I want to connect two dots, which is the socializing and what Liz is talking about, the negativity, releasing negativity, but also increasing positivity. So if you you can be doing all, all of these things, but it is hard and it is hard, but it could save your life. It could help save your life. We all have you know, SNL created this character, the Debbie Downer. (laughs) They're there. They're there. They're out there. And we feel sorry for them. So we lend them an ear, but it's not helping us and it's not helping them. These are, Liz is talking about things that we have to let go of, but also people that we have to let go of. I know I've heard plenty of stories of people taking a deep breath and just deciding that they need to limit the amount of time on the phone with their mom. And it's, you know, it's they just get a picture in their mind of, I'll call her once a week and I'll say after 15 minutes that I have to get off. These are hard decisions, but here's the key. If you are around people who are doing that, Oh yeah, I did that with mom. Yeah, I did that with my mom too. I had to do that with my. I did that with my sister. Um, then you can do it. So yeah. it's that finding, going back to uh, the need to belong and fit in with your social circle. If you are, if you can find people to surround yourself with who are like in Liz's community, you your brain will just float you over to doing those things. 
But if you're around people like, oh, honor your mother, what are you talking about? You can't have to talk to your mother until she hangs up. Just kind of get a float over to some different people and you'll find it so much easier. That, that, that drive to belong, the drive to fit in is a very, very powerful force in the brain. So yeah, and the, would, yeah. The important piece to that is making sure that you are really in touch with what you want and finding mm -hmm. people that are already going to accept already you in that it. place, mm -hmm. right? A lot mm -hmm. of times people can maybe be a chameleon to the group that they're in um, so that they fit in, but it doesn't feel, you know, in flow or connected to who they are. So really identifying right who your community and who your tribe, as you mentioned earlier, who do you want that to be? And then find mm -hmm. them because they're already going to accept you as you are. You don't have to change to fit in. Yes. And this is, this is another interesting thing, getting back to food addiction about, and, and, I, and I'm struggling to remember exactly what study it was. I think it was the same guy, B-A-H-R, who found that, um, that it's not realistic to want to, to be able to lose weight if your social circle's not losing weight. Right. Um, he lined out the reasons why people, the, the, the connection between food and the reasons why people are attracted to a social circle. And one of them can be, um, they will help me hide my food addiction. So people might be attracted to a social circle because they are eating processed foods. They're celebrating processed foods. They plan events around processed foods. Oh, so, so what they're doing is they're normalizing uh, the addiction. And, right. and you can be attracted to that group because the addiction says, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the addiction is a powerful force in the brain. Yeah. We know from our experience, it's not more powerful than the fitting in drive, the drive to be normal, the drive to be accepted. That drive is stronger than the addiction drive. But in most people in this world, the drive to fit in and the addiction drive are the same. I yeah. mean, we know that over 80% of, of Americans are showing the signs of a severe addiction to processed foods. Oh, yeah. We have diagnostic criteria, we have thresholds. You have six or more of these signs. It's it's a serious, it's a mm -hmm. severe addiction. So the the thing that's most likely going on in your life is that you are around people who are addicted, and who don't know it, and who are gravitating towards uh, activities that would normalize the addiction. Oh, they're having a birthday. Oh, great! You know, right. are we bringing the cake or the ice cream? Right. So, right. Or you show up at an event course. like that. If you're at an event like that and you choose to not partake, oh, come on, just have the piece of cake. Who wants cake? There's three more pieces. Come on, just take a piece. Only eat what you want. And then all of a sudden you have a, a plate of cake in your hands and you don't want the cake. Want it. Right. Yeah. right. So it's people possible. will also join a group. Um, now, there are two other pathways to socializing leading to food addiction. So one is you join because they're already doing it. Um, two, you're joining because you don't have any choice. And then you're stuck with whatever they're doing with their food. Or three, you do make a de deliberate decision to hang out with healthy people. 
Right. And that's, that's not easy. In our culture, sometimes the, the quote, the people who look really healthy, they're, they're like the fitness jocks. Um, they're using their fitness routines to compensate for overeating from the addiction. Right. So it's a little bit complicated, but Liz, it sounds like you all are all over it. Yes, I, I have to say I am very blessed in my personal life to have surrounded myself very much like what you said. So having um, a, a neighborhood full of people who are plant-based and gluten-free and dairy-free and will make meals for each other. And, or if we have extras of a meal we make, all of a sudden you end up with a little mason jar of somebody else's leftovers. And um, it's really beautiful when you connect with two or three families of people that mm -hmm. eat the way you do. Um, and then, you know, I love being the person that shows up at a celebration and bringing the vegetable side dish, but not yeah. just your standard salad, you know, maybe like a beautiful beet salad or, or something unexpected and everybody eats it. Nobody's really, oh. you know, they all want that, but nobody's thinking mm -hmm. to bring that. Mm -hmm. So it's much easier to go buy the bag of Doritos and bring it to the, the party yeah. or even just the cut up veggies. The cut up veggies are great. But why not take that opportunity to teach somebody a recipe? And I can't tell you how many times people have asked me for that beet salad recipe. <laughs> I bet. I, I'm hoping that it'll show up in my email. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's delicious. Yeah, this is this is the thing that everybody in this community knows, I think, that real food is gorgeous. It is just yes. gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And I do want to talk about one other thing, which is blame. So this is a culture which likes to blame. And it likes to ascribe reasons to, oh, you didn't try hard enough. Or, you know, I, I was on a kind of podcast TV program and I don't know why I was on there, but there was a financial advisor type person on there. And he tried to say, well, you know, people are lazy. Oh, I, I couldn't let him. I mean, normally I'm trying to be polite, but I could not let him speak, keep speaking. I had to speak over him. I said, how can you say that? Now, why would he say that? Why would he make that observation? Well, Americans are eating 73% of their food in processed foods. And processed foods make us tired. And they make us brain fogged. They make us lethargic. They make it hard to think. They make it hard to, to get off the sofa. But that is not your fault. And you are not lazy. And you are not, uh, you do not lack willpower. Willpower is not the pathway to put a severe addiction into remission. And you, what you lack, and, and I think Liz and I are saying the same thing, is uh, healthy people around you. Yes. You have healthy people around you and they're not eating processed foods and they're eating clean foods. And, and this is what Chef AJ has done. What a gift yeah. is to create this huge plant-based community uh, to where you are surrounded people who are surrounded by people who are aware sugar is a drug. Processed flowers act on the brain like a drug. Gluten has a morphine in it. Dairy has four different kinds of casomorphine in it. Excessive fat activates the same pathways as uh, marijuana. And excessive salt mm. activates the opioid pathway. Caffeine, active, you know, it just goes on. And then you have the right. food additives. 
So you have um, you have the great community that Chef AJ has created, and all the awareness there. Yeah. So let's see. Yes. Um, Chef AJ, do you want us to answer questions? If you're there. Uh, I'm here. I just I muted myself. So let me let me. I'm just so fascinated listening. I'm let me look if there's questions in the chat. Uh, da, da, da. I've been I've been a, a an audience member listening to this wonderful conversation because I'm very familiar with Dr. Kelly Turner's work. I remember when the book first came out, and I actually bought it on audio. And now she has another book, and I think I think this is fabulous, and it's a great intersection of what both of you guys teach. Mm -hmm. And Angela saying you have another fat, an, your guests are fascinating, and you have the most engaging conversations. Do you guys have any questions specifically about what's being discussed today? You know, I've, I some questions do come in for you, Doctor Rifflin, but they're not necessarily about the topic you're discussing that month. They're more, more about just certain foods and food addiction, things like that. You know. Liz, is it okay if I take those questions? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Let's Go see. Ahead. You know, you might have answered one of them. Let me let me pull them up. You might have actually answered one of them last time, but it's it's a lady that keeps writing about dates and uh, you know whether or not it's okay for her to eat them and things like that. I, I mm -hmm. think people are individuals. You know, not just what is right for one. It's not always a one size fits all. I think it's a mm -hmm. one size fits mm -hmm. most. But let me pull this up. It's from Dana. And she said, um, um, she wants to know how she can add dates back into her diet in an appropriate way is to not get addicted to them again. Uh -huh. So the one thing about uh, processed food addiction is it starts very young. It's a lot of different substances. I grew up in an addicted brain. Every cell in my brain developed in an addicted brain. I was assaulted by the tobacco company as a child when they came into processed foods, bought Kraft Nabisco General Foods in three short years in the mid 1980s. My addiction is very, very deep and my reward centers are very, very sensitive. So I did go through a period where I thought I could eat dates and then I started thinking I could eat other things, toxic things. My brain is way too sensitive to eat a a high sugar plant like dates, like bananas, like cherries, like grapes, anything that involves a repeat hand to motion, the addiction, you can feel the addiction wake up and take control over your behavior. You're kind of watching your hand do this, but you're not controlling it. The addiction has reached over to the behavior center and bypassed the, the frontal lobe. So, when you consider that sugar is more addictive than cocaine, in this incredible study done by Serge Ahmed at University of Bordeaux, he got rats addicted to sugar, saccharin, cocaine, and heroin. He gave them access to all four. What did they choose? They chose the sugar over heroin and cocaine. And then he said, well, maybe that's because sugar has calories. He took the sugar away. Guess what they chose next? Saccharin, saccharin over heroin and cocaine. So I don't want to do anything. These, these reward centers are deeply trained. They have a deep memory of what to do when they're exposed to one of these addictive substances. And it is flood the brain with craving transmit, neurotransmitters, flood the brain with cravings that will go straight over to the, to the behavior centers 
totally bypass the, oh, no, I don't want to eat that part of the brain, the frontal lobe. I don't want to tempt that monster. I don't want to wake up that dragon. I don't want to, um, I don't want to do anything to attract that monster into my brain. So dates just aren't in my house. They're not in my house. And um, I am more at ease. You know, we, we have talked a lot about stress in this hour. It would be stressful for me to have dates in my house. I would be thinking about them and my, my dopamine would be leaking out into my brain. Now, somebody else who maybe was became addicted later in life and works in an environment where there is no temptation and doesn't have people in their household who are cueing them, they might be able to eat a date every now and then, um, but not me. Does that help, Chef AJ? Yeah, I, but, you know, I think people have to know themselves. Don't you agree? Because, you know, for some people, may, like I can have them in my house because I don't really think of them as food. I think of them as an ingredient. And mm -hmm. so, I, I mean, they're way too sweet for me to eat by themselves. But like, you know, like I make a marinara sauce, for example, that has a couple of dates in it for sweetness. So mm -hmm. I don't think about dates as like, food for me. So, uh, but, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, I have a saying, if it's in your house, it's in your mouth. And if it's yeah. a problem <laughs> for people, then, then they, they need to know themselves. I think part of the problem is in this case, the husband is not on board. And so there's, there, there's going to be some kind of non-compliant food for the individual anyway, you know, mm -hmm. I want to share with your, with your members that this is so annoying and it's so destructive and distracting that if there is a food that somebody in your household wants to keep in the house, okay, they have to lock it in the trunk of their car or put it in one of those lockable file cabinets. Uh, but you should not be subjected to temptation. That's a myth that grew up out of um, some parts of this recovery world that somehow you should be able to be in your house and be around addictive foods and not be bothered by it. Uh, -uh That's not consistent with the research. Good to know. You know, this question I think might be a good one for you, Liz. And it's because it's a it's from Darlene. And she said, I always hear that sugar is bad for cancer. But what about starches? I've seen mixed information about that. And we're talking mm. about the kind of starches Dr. McDougall recommends sweet potatoes, squash, whole right. grains, not not flour and sugars, that kind of starch. Yeah, I think that um, from a radical remission specific, you know, from that research is where we always kind of try to come from are, you know, cancer, ca cancer patients and the research done on the cancer patients led to either plant-based diet or kind of a, a keto diet and it depended on the type of cancer they had, which one was best for um, them to do for their healing. So that's mm. a little bit of a different take on what, you know, what you guys are, are practicing here, but what across the board, everybody did was add at least half of their plate for every snack and every meal was fruits or vegetables. So it wasn't looked at specifically in the sense of what you're saying with like a, a starchy fruit or vegetable or high, you know, lots of fructose or whatnot. Um, it was really more about having, that's their way of kind of starting to, um, you know, crowd out the things that might be more challenging to eat. Um, but then when it comes to, um, you know, having the, the nutrition, like we talked about with the herbs and supplements, the nutrition testing can help them figure out what is or is not serving them. 
um, mm-hmm. through nutrition deficiencies. So that's something that we recommend comes from that kind of herbs and supplements practitioner, whether it's their integrative doctor or nutritionist or whatever. Um, that's how our community kind of navigates the food is crowding out things that don't serve you, you know, avoiding, we say uh, meat, wheat, sweets, and dairy are the four things that we um, recommend reducing or eliminating based on the research. And meat, obviously meat is meat. Wheat, we use, we use that because it rhymes and it kind of helps people remember it. Wheat really is speaking about processed foods and and wheats, the sugars, the processed sugars and dairy is obviously. Maybe you should just say teats because that's meat, sweet and teats because dairy (laughs) is from a teat. Yeah, you're right. Yes. True. I I, I might suggest that (laughs) meat, wheat, sweets and teats. Yeah, I think so. Cause then it's an easy rhyme. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That is a, a really good one. Thank okay. you. Well, that's what I'm here for. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, Dr. Iflin L sent in a question for you and said, I try as best I can to plan out meals and remain satiated, but I have found that when plans change and I can't eat right away, my cravings are intense, obsessive, anxiety causing and painful and feel almost impossible to avoid giving into any suggestions on how to deal with those. I think you just um, speak up. Uh, I had that situation last weekend. I was traveling uh, with somebody in their car and uh, they wanted to stay and and talk to some other people and I needed to eat. So I, you know, I waited a few minutes and then I said, we have to go. I'm so sorry. I will be sick for four days if I don't eat soon. And then there was more chatter and they said, we have to go now because I'm going to be, and it's true. I mean, I will lose my electrolytes and be quite sick if I don't eat on time. The other thing to do is just to slip snacks into your pocket. If you are that sensitive, like I am, and I should have, I, I should have had, um, we used to call it a, a protein in pocket pips. Oh, you know what is- we call ours? We call ours PIMP, P-I-M-P, potato in my purse. Yes. Yes, yes. Something where you can just um, go off to the restroom and um, eat. Yeah. Protein in purse, uh, potato in purse. Um, In my purse, because then we say we're pimping it right now. Yeah. We should design a special purse for our needs, you know? Yep, should be. be. Liz, are you primarily plant-based? Um, yeah, for the most part, I am. I I do dabble in the world of fish, um, but that is just a personal preference for me. Nice. Um, but yeah, I and do. I do. Do you work with people in, in with cancer? Like, I, I'd like to know a little bit more about what you do, and, and because sure. the bio that we got for you is just a couple of lines. So, I'd like, in case people would like to know more about how to work with you and what you do, is it do you do private coaching, group coaching? Maybe tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, yes. Thank you for asking. Um, I do have a private practice called the health navigators and that is myself and my, my business partner, Carla, that I mentioned earlier. Um, we have, we are both radical remission coaches and we're also both co-directors of the project. So we offer one-on-one coaching. We offer group coaching. We have a community of people that we call our inspired thrivers. And, uh, we have different activities and events throughout the month, all virtual that people can come together and be with like-minded, similar to, um, you know, Dr. Jones community, just a like-minded place for people to connect 
um, so that when they're living with a, a really big diagnosis, they have um, a like-minded community that can really support them and understand. Um, but yeah, so if, if anyone is interested in learning about taking a radical remission workshop, just to learn how to implement those factors in their life, again, it does not, it is not specific to cancer. It is not specific to any one type of disease. So the radicalremission.com website has a place for uh, finding a workshop and then also finding a coach. And there are 115 radical remission coaches around the globe. And we are, majority of us are working virtually in addition to in person. So there should be someone in every time zone that can be reached if you need support in this area. That's great. You know, we have plenty more room in the show notes. So if you'd like to email me more than than what I have already, including clickable links to social media or your courses, I would love to add them because we actually have a question from Nina about what role does forgiveness play in healing of cancer and how does one facilitate that? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I would put that in the releasing suppressed emotions factor as far as if we were to talk about that. Um, and that one, again, it's it's very personal. It's very private, um, individual. And when it comes to forgiveness, um, the way we've worked within, within our community is um, we'll form a, a group coaching where that becomes the focus and the topic. And we'll find a book or a resource that really gets to the heart of how to handle digging into a topic. And then we'll have a group of, I don't know, maybe six or eight people together meeting weekly for about six weeks to really dialogue about that. So it really, again, it depends on who, who you're trying to forgive. Are you trying to forgive yourself? Are you trying to forgive a loved one? Um, is it a lifelong forgiveness? If it, is it a, you know, a short term? So, you know, there's such a huge, um, that's a very big question. So, um, I would say that what we often do for the releasing suppressed emotions factor for, um, one-on-one coaching, if someone feels really, really stuck then we definitely refer them to a a licensed therapist so that they have someone that can help them with the tools of practicing and getting that um, out of, you know, out of suppression or, you know, um, a lot of times the difference, I think that's, it's worth explaining the difference between a therapist and a coach is that the therapist will work with you on everything that's brought you up to become who you are today and maybe helping release some of that out, forgiveness being one of them. And a coach will work with you on who are you today and where do you want to go? So what goals are we going to set and how can we help you implement that through coaching? And Mm -hmm. so they're very different aspects, but I think the forgiveness piece falls more into that releasing suppressed emotions, working with a therapist, if you're really having trouble with that, but it is, it is a big one. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting how in Dr. Turner's research, changing the diet was one of the key factors and like it was seemed to be primarily plant-based, but more than that, it was excluding the junk that you mentioned. Yet so many people, when they get cancer, their oncologists will say, oh, diet has nothing to do with it. Time eat, eat, this is, you should indulge, you should enjoy. And it's like, oh my God. I feel like that's them speaking from their personal point of view. Mm -hmm. It's not, I don't imagine that there's any medical in, you know, institution that says, go drink the glass of, uh, you know, the margarita and eat the brownie. I don't think they do. Um, I lost a friend 
to uh, an institution. Uh, he developed prostate cancer and they were telling him to drink all the, this is a sugary weight gain drink. I'm not gonna mention the name, but he had cases of it in his house. It's very sugary and he didn't make it. Mm. Yeah. I, I could have just. It is a disservice to, I feel to people that they, and that's why I'm so passionate about ex- introducing people to these factors. It's a disservice to not give someone the full picture, even if it's not in your wheelhouse, letting them know that these things exist and there's ways, you know, I wouldn't assume that my doctor would be my nutritionist, but if my yes, doctor says right. go to a nutritionist, then I would, might be more likely to do that because the role that doctors play in our culture in America, the, the, you know, we give them a lot of power. So it's a disservice that they're not allowing you know, that perspective to be given and really encourage them to be the CEO, you know, let the patient be the CEO and develop their role of practitioners. And support their choices. I remember taking my elderly stepmom to her doctor, who was also my doctor. And I, and she was in pain and she's in her nineties from fibromyalgia. And I looked at him and I said, do you think a diet change would help her? And he glared at me. And and this is like burned in my memory. He said, you know, nutrition is really fringe. (laughs) Wow. I used to to volunteer at an infusion center when people were getting their chemotherapy, doing pet therapy. And when the lunch cart would come along, they got their choice of 7-Up or Coke or Diet Coke. And they had their choice of Doritos or Cool Ranch Doritos or Fritos or regular chips. And then a sandwich, usually it was ham and cheese uh, on white bread. And that, and, and then of course there was some kind of like, like sugary dessert. And, you know, I, I couldn't say anything. It's my parent, my father developed a kind of a lymphoma at the end of his life. And my stepmom, they would go to the center for the infusion. She would walk around and gather all of her favorite processed foods. And then they would sit there and eat them while he had his infusion. Nutritionist fringe. That might be the best quote of the day. (laughs) It should be first, you know. Oh, my God. You know, Hippocrates, food be thy medicine. I I guess it wasn't fringe back then, huh? You know, these are good hearted people. These physicians, they put their money down and. You know, it could cost three quarters of a million dollars to get a to get all the way to just even a, a first level MD. They're told that they will be able to help people. They're given, you know, the self confidence and the power to be able to say, to make life or death decisions. It's not their fault. It's not their fault, and they are frustrated, and they want to quit, and the system really squeezes them. They have eight minutes to try to do something that requires residential treatment. And I feel sorry for them. We're, we're actually, we have a program now for a licensed health professionals. It's our grassroots program and we're lifting them up and we're finding other ways for them to get satisfaction from their practices. That's great. Yeah. And another piece to uh, worth saying, and I'll certainly share this with you, uh, Chef AJ, is that if practitioners are in fact listening to this, um, we do do a teacher training. And Joan, you had mentioned participating in that. We we highly encourage doctors and um, you know licensed practitioners to join the radical remission teacher training because then mm-hmm. they learn those 10 healing factors and how to help 
their clients and their patients infuse these factors into their everyday life. And they're mm-hmm. given the tools and the activities to do that. And the scientific basis, they've got to yes. have the research. They yes. can't just go to their medical director and say, I'm pretty sure that adding meditation, no, you've got to go with the research to that medical director and then maybe even do presentations for your colleagues. I think the medical profession is opening up to these other modalities because A, they're losing patients to them and B, um, what they're doing is not working. This is, to me, from where I sit, this is an epidemic, just like smoking was an addiction epidemic Processed foods have now created an, an addiction epidemic, and and they're not equipped to deal with an addiction, uh, processed food addiction epidemic. It's right. not their fault either, and it's not your fault, and it's not their fault either. Right. Yep. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you both. Thank you so much for having thanks, me. Thanks, Chef AJ. It's my pleasure. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time for the Arthritis Recovery Hour with Clint Pattison. He'll be talking about exercises that you can do with both rheumatoid and osteoarthritis. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.